Christmas has come, and now we're on our New Year's, but we are still technically in the Christmas season, which goes from Christmas morning until Epiphany, which is January 6th. And so that's a little bit of what we're going to be talking about. Epiphany is um, the physical manifestation or the presentation of Christ. And typically, in the church calendar, we focus on the story of the three kings coming to present the gifts. And so we'll read that story, but just to keep in mind, like Advent, and, and mostly marketing and consumerism has driven us to really celebrate Christmas before Christmas Day. But before all of that, all during Advent, you, do, you wouldn't even have your tree up typically until Christmas morning. That was when the tree would be brought in and the candles would be lit. And so Advent was this longing for, this expectation of this thing to come. And then on Christmas, we celebrate that Christ has come. And, and the decorations come out. And then uh, the 12 days of Christmas with that song actually begins with Christmas Day. So Christmas morning is the first day of Christmas. The day after, December 26th, would be the second day of Christmas. And you have 12 days of Christmas leading up. Um, in Canada and England, they actually do Boxing Day. So on the 26th was, um, and that's not like boxing fighting, um, which I thought was very weird. Why is boxing a holiday? Uh, but that, that's when the presents were actually exchanged more communally. You would bring someone a present in a box. And that was the celebration of Boxing Day. So it's just fascinating stuff. But we've moved all of Christmas beforehand, typically now, in modern culture. But Christmas season is actually what we're in. And so we have this presentation of the divine being, the baby Jesus, and presented to the wise men. Um, now, also, this is interesting, some translations around the wise men being presented um, actually has, it says that, and, and Jesus was standing next to Mary. So, sometimes you're like, you know, in all the movies and the cartoons and the whatnot, like, oh, the wise men are like, they're at the stable, right, on your nativity scene. How many people have a nativity scene and the wise men are there while the baby Jesus is in the stable? Yeah, that's wrong. That's not uh, actually historically correct. Uh, because this, this event, they're searching for Christ. And it's really focusing on even light, right? Arise, shine, for your light has come. This star that came, and the wise men are following this star. This new light that has come into the world. And with light comes revelation, right? When you walk into a dark room and you turn on the light, you can see things. You can have an epiphany. Oh, that's where I left that. Uh, we got a new puppy this year, and he likes to sleep in various spots. But if I have to wake up in the middle of the night and maybe use the restroom, get a glass of water or whatever, um, I try to be very careful because I get up and it's dark, and I just have no idea where he is. Um, you think he would pick a spot and he would stay there. So sometimes, right, as I get out of bed, I step and then there's a yelp. Um, so I kind of, you know, I'm like, okay, he's not there good. He's probably downstairs. And I take a couple steps and then, nope, I'm tripping over in the dark, right? Um, and the idea is that with the presentation of Christ, this light becomes illuminating. And with light, we have this epiphany. Ah, that's where the dog is. I shouldn't step on him. Um, but I don't want to turn on the light and wake up Shiana. So I just do this nightly thing where I get to explore 
um, and hopefully not trip and fall. But light brings awareness. Light brings an epiphany of an understanding. It is the presentation of God to the Gentiles as he was presented to the wise men. And this is the story we find in Matthew chapter 2. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, Where is this child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star and its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all of Jerusalem with them, and calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them the Messiah was where the Messiah was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, as it has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler, who is to be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the wise men, and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. And then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently. For the child. And when you have found him, bring me word so that I too may go and pay him homage. And when they had heard the king, they set out. And there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. And on entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening the treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. And so these wise men come and they want to, they're following a star, they're following a light. One of the things that I find interesting, especially right now in kind of the, the spiritual culture of our world and post-COVID and isolation, there are a lot of people right now who are looking I think more than, than in many years, there is a hunger and a search for the divine. They don't necessarily know what it is yet. Right? Oh, I'm going through my life. I'm just feeling this disconnect. I'm, I, there's this, I'm, I'm hungry for something. I'm not quite sure it's my parents' religion or my grandparents' religion. Or, or I'm not sure that I want to go back to church and sit in pews and Sunday school and all of that. But I'm, I'm looking for something. There's this light that has dawned and there's this search. And sometimes we search for something that we don't quite know what it is just yet. And these wise men are coming. They're like, we don't know. Like, there's this new star. And so we're leaving our homeland. We're leaving what we know. And we're in search of this. And, and culture and whatnot, this new star means a new king and whatnot. So, so there's something. But they didn't know what it was they were searching for. They just knew they were searching. And they start, and they begin to learn, and they get to, to following the star, and they get into to Israel, and they begin asking questions. Hey, there's this new star. It means a new king is born. Where is this at? Where? And, and through investigation, they begin to find where. And they interact with King Herod, who... If you follow the story, we know that he's not necessarily a good guy. Uh, but, but he says this thing that I, just thinks, sticks out to me in the stories we're here. It says, go and search diligently. There's this new star. There's an epiphany. There's a light that's shining. 
There's this manifestation of the divine. You may not know what it is yet. You may not know how it affects your life yet. You may not know how it is going to shape out and all of that. But go and search diligently for this new light, for this divine. Be open to what this divine may mean to your life. Be open to the idea of what this love might mean to your story. And sometimes I think that we, we're intellectual people and whatnot. How many of you like to know everything and have it all figured out before you actually move and take action? Like, oh, there's a new star, but I really want to know where is it going to be at? How are we going to travel? How many camels do we need? Should I pack winter clothes or just my summer robes? Um, how long is it going to take? When we get there, where will we be staying? Right? We need to kind of have everything figured out before we go on our adventure. Um, I'm notorious when I rock climb or whatnot. My pack weighs probably 20 pounds more than it needs because in my mind, I'm like, I don't know. Like, oh, I have this thing. There's no reason I should need it. Yep, it goes in the back, just in case. Uh, and my pack usually weighs a good 20 pounds more than it needs just because I'm right. Because what if I'm on the trail and I don't like that trail anymore, but I see this and I go, oh, that'd be fun. Let's go. Uh, right, so, so I'm more of the like, I, I'll go on an adventure, I don't need to know. Uh, my friends and I, when we were in high school, I had three friends. Uh, well, there's three of us, so two friends, I guess. Uh, more than, but the three of us would hang out a lot. And the reason we hung out is because all three of us actually had jobs. And we had money, and typically in high school with other teenagers, when you'd go out with friends who didn't have money or their own jobs, they were always kind of bumming off you, whatnot. So the three of us had jobs, and we actually would always try to pay for each other one. But we got to taking road trips. We're like, hey, do you have Saturday off? I do have Saturday off. And we would not even know where, but we would pick a destination. Or a direction, rather. We're like, where are we going? South. Perfect. Where are we going? North. Excellent. With no idea where it was going to end up. We would just pack some things for the day. We would jump in the car. We had gas money. We had money for food along the way. And we would just go in a direction. In search of what we didn't know. One time we were just gonna kind of tool along the Oregon coast and then we started seeing road signs for the Redwood Forest. And we're like, ah, oh, if we really drive hard, we could get there. Yeah, let's do it, right? So we end up, and I was living in Olympia, Washington from the, the time. So we end up hitting the Redwood Forest and we get out and kind of explore that. But as you get to the Redwood Forest, you start seeing these signs, San Francisco, 200 miles. And we're like, okay, if it's we could do San Francisco. We can, make, we can make Frisco and then still be back by school on Monday. Like, we get there, we do the da 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 right? So all the way to Frisco we went, uh, driving all night, changing, uh, whatnot, right? So we, we this, this idea of venturing or in search of something without knowing, I actually kind of like. It's an adventure. But most people, we want to know. I mean, if you were going to San Francisco, how many of you would like to plan for that properly? Right? few of you. Uh, if you were going to go to the Redwood Forest, how many of you would like to plan for that properly? Mm -hmm. Right? Um, yeah, no, just grab some stuff, jump in the car, pick a direction. Or pick a highway. Who knows where it's going to end up? Uh, and it's sort of what these wise men did. There was a new light, which meant that a, a king was born, and they didn't know where this star was taking them. But they knew it was significant and important, so they decided to start following it. 
I know I'm in search of the divine, even if I don't fully understand what it is, how it affects my life, where it is going to lead me, but it's significant enough for me to move towards something. And this passage here, where it says, go and search diligently, what all is involved in that process. I do want to take a moment and just realize uh, and acknowledge in this process with King Herod, and we think of the baby Jesus born and all of the order, but we also have to carry the weight of brokenness, which we talk about a lot in this church. Herod finds out the time and date of the star appearing, and therefore guesses Christ's age. And Christ can't be over than two or some historians three. Herod, by proclamation, doesn't want to be in competition with the divine-born king and issues a decree that all children from that age under, all male children from that age under, should be killed. So Christ is born, and we celebrate this, and we sing songs, but Christ is born into and immediately, even as an infant, toddler, whatever age you want to put it at, you know, whether it's baby Jesus or like toddler Jesus next to Mary, Jesus is born into a broken world of slaughter, death, you could even call it a genocide. Fleeing for his life because Mary and Joseph are warned in a dream, so they take baby Jesus and they flee Israel as refugees to another country and they go to Egypt to hide, to stay alive, to survive. They didn't go with, oh, here's a great job opportunity. I think, let's go and explore Egypt. They fled purely to survive and avoid a genocide. And so Christ, we celebrate it. It's the light of the world. It's the joy. It's the hope. It's the forgiveness of sin for all mankind. All of those things. And it's an amazing gift, but it is instantly brought with this brokenness. As other children, the age of Christ, maybe even kids that he's played with as a toddler are being murdered and slaughtered out of fear. Because sure, there's this divine, and there's this light, and there's this, but, but what does that mean? Some of us get excited about the idea of not knowing in the pursuit of the divine, and it terrifies others. What could this mean? What political, personal? And so the birth of Christ is brought into a world of bloodshed instantly, refugees, being an immigrant in a foreign country, looking for asylum and just trying to live and survive. And I think right now in our world, whether it's Iran, Ukraine, the U.S.-Mexican border, there's a lot of people in this world who relate to that story of brokenness. Simply trying to survive, fleeing to other countries in just hopes of survival. Where do we, and if we believe that this Christ child is the hope of the world, where does our belief of this divine hope of the world intersect with modern brokenness, bloodshed, refugees, immigrants? 
And I'm like, this is supposed to be a positive message about New Year's. And Jesus was just born. Listen, I didn't write the history. This is just where we find ourselves in Scripture. It's a challenge. But there is hope. That's the part that like, Jesus came into this world and there was brokenness. But what did that brokenness bring? Right? His brokenness and his bloodshed on the cross was this hope unto the world. It's the path of forgiveness. It's this, this opportunity to take this chasm between us as human beings and the divine that we don't understand and to close that so we could grasp how deep, how wide the love of God is. And so, yes, it's in the midst of brokenness, but it is a beautiful brokenness because it brings us closer to understanding of the divine and his love for us. It brings us forgiveness and it closes that chasm so we can be in relationship with a God that desperately wants to bring hope to the world, but also hope to your world, to your story, to your family, to your friends, to your relationships. And we have to grasp, and this is one of the hard things, like God the Savior of the world, but God the Savior of my world. And sometimes people in our understanding, like, oh, we understand a personal God, but I don't know that... You know, all-encompassing. And like, and others are like, oh, I get that, but like, who's God to care about me personally? Like, God's going to do big godly things, but surely he doesn't care about my wants and needs or my little hardships. Like, whoa, who am I? Like, I can't be. And, and often we, we, we struggle to hold this concept that God so loved the world that he died for you. That he was born for you. He came into this world that you might know him. He came into this world so that your light might come on in this epiphany, this manifestation of the divine in your world. I want to take a look at 1 John uh, 1, which was the passage we read um, this morning as well. Thank you for putting that up because I don't you know, have my notes. Um, I love, I love this passage. So, uh, also, so First John, I want to go through some language, but not, it's not good. Uh, John is one of the 12 disciples that walked around with Jesus. Um, he was a fisherman, we know from Scripture. So, to understand context, and this is language and where we get the meaning, because sometimes we read Scripture, and, and it has words that have been translated into English, and we're like, oh, okay, but, but it's gone through time and space and culture, right? So, John is a Jew, which means he most likely spoke Hebrew. So his first language, common language, national language, whatever, is Hebrew. Uh, John was also a fisherman, and in that time, Rome was conquering the world, right? So Israel was a Roman providence. Uh, and all of these different countries had their own languages, but they had to trade with each other. And so the common kind of trade language that emerged was Aramaic. So if you went to the market and there was a boat from some other place and they were trading clothes and you had fish and they had carved goods or whatnot, all of the trading was usually done in Aramaic. That was kind of the, um, the, the, the low uh, common language of the working class. So as a fisherman, he most likely spoke Aramaic also. Which is, uh, there's a phrase in, in one of the Gospels that refers to Jesus, and they call him Rabboni, which is Aramaic for teacher. And, and a little anecdote next to it, so that was actually his favorite thing that could be called. Um, this, this common worker class language for teacher was his preference. Um, 
And so somewhere along the lines, though, John writes the Gospel of John and the books, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and they're all written in Greek. So somewhere, this Jewish fisherman, working class, probably New Aramaic, somewhere he learns Greek in the story. Now, did he actually learn Greek? Did he write it in Greek? Did he write it in Hebrew or Aramaic and somebody translated it in Greek? Did he orate it to someone else who was writing? We don't really know. But then even once it's written, the earliest manuscripts of this is in Greek. And Greek language is interesting because it uses words that doesn't always mean what we think it means. Or it has a deeper meaning to us. Uh, and then, so that gets translated in, into English and survives all of the Reformation, right? So the first printing of the Bible, uh, which was in German, once it got to the printing press and it starts going, and then it's translated into English. And so sometimes then we look at scripture and like, oh, are they just saying the same thing over? Because sometimes we read scripture and it goes like, well, they already said that. It's redundant or it's confusing. Why are they, why do they, that? I don't, have anybody read scripture that way? You ever like, what are they saying, right? So it says, 1 John 1, 1, we declare to you that what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And I'm like, well, you already said you looked at it. You seen it with your eyes and you looked upon it? Well, yeah, because you saw it with your eyes. So we're just going to break some of this down. Greek origin. It starts at John 1, 1. We declare to you that from the beginning, what we have heard, so that was pretty simple, that what we have heard literally means with our ears, and we, we've heard. Uh, the interesting part in the text is uh, it's specifically to what we have heard firsthand. So the early church, the uh, disciples who were writing the Gospels, they were there, they heard it firsthand. You ever play the telephone game where, like, I tell Steve something, Steve tells Eric, and then Eric's going to tell Kelly, and it works all the way back around until Scott's over here, and he tells me, and it's completely different, because it, right? It's not that. This hurt, what we have heard, this contact right here, is firsthand. We have heard this because we were there. We saw it. It has been communicated to us directly, not necessarily being passed down on and on. So this is what we have heard directly. What we have seen with our eyes. Now this part, seen with, the language in the Greek literally means to stare at. And so you can kind of imagine maybe something at a distance, and we're staring at the drum set over there maybe. And, and we're trying to discern it clearly. Like, well, what is that? I think it's a drum set. Why would there be a drum set in this church? Nobody even plays the drums. That's interesting. Right? So we start to discern it. And seeing with our eyes, and the term eyes here is more on the figurative versus the physical. Right? So figuratively, as you start to think about something where the mind's eye, you start to imagine a, a drum set and what it can do, what sounds it might be able to make, how does it impact our life, perhaps. It's not necessarily like physically my eyes touching it or my eyes seeing it, but, but we're beginning to, we've seen it kind of from afar. We're trying to discern it clearly, and then we're trying to kind of make sense of it in our head, figuratively. And it, from figuratively, we've seen it with our eyes. We have looked at it, and now this is different. Looked at it means more of a prolonged gaze. I have 
just seeing it from afar, I'm not just discerning, and I'm not just figuratively trying to figure out what does it do, which is important, like mentally to get. It means that I have this prolonged gaze and I've actually looked closely at it. Right? I'm going over and I'm actually, I'm investigating. I'm, I'm putting myself in a closer position to maybe understand it better. And sometimes we blow by scripture, things that God is doing so fast, we go, oh, we saw that, oh, God did something over there. But no, do we stop? And do we actually go and look upon it? Do we intentionally draw closer to it with this prolonged gaze? And I love this part. It means to visit it. Not just that I'm going to see it, but I'm going to go and, and visit that which I have looked upon. I'm going to spend time with it. I'm going to wrestle with it. Good or bad. Beautiful or messy. Or often as we're learning in scripture, both beautiful and messy. And to be able to look up and going to visit it in its brokenness and in its hope all at the same time. And then it says, uh, touch with our hands. And this is actually to like verify by contact. Like, oh, is what I'm seeing an illusion? Right? I'm going to go over and look at it and I'm perceiving it closely. But I'm actually going to touch it with my hands. Oh, yeah. That's a symbol. It makes noise. We're verifying by touching uh, when I take Taylor to the store, like when she was littler, also, I'm telling a story, uh, there's always this like, okay, where do your hands go? In your pocket. Because when you're a kid, and maybe when you're an adult, you can't look at things in a store without touching them. Oh, what's this? What is this? Oh, is there a button? Let me push the button. Like, no, no, look, but don't touch. Right? Go in the store, look, but don't touch. Look, but don't touch. Don't break things. And so we'd have to like, oh, where do our hands in our pocket? Right? Uh, but this is the opposite of that. This is, is to look at it for long days, perceive it, visit it, but to touch it with your hands. To verify by contact. One of the other translations on this um, was to manipulate it. And so this is often in trade language. If you were a tailor, you would touch with your hands. You would manipulate. You would put your hands to it and to be able to shape and make whatever you were making. If you were a fisherman, you would put your hands to it and the, the, fisher, the fish and the nets and the rods and everything associated to it. It's not just touching it, but you're actually putting your hands to it to verify it, to manipulate it. If you're a farmer, you're going to put your hands to the soil and you're pulling weeds and pruning and trimming. It's, it's a more in-depth working of the subject matter. So as this, we hear this gospel, we, we have this light that has come, and we're going to declare it from the beginning, but we're not just going to like, oh, it's there. Right? We, we're going to see it. We're going to stare at it. We're going to discern it. We're going to think, what does it figuratively have to do? And then we are going to actually physically go and visit it with a prolonged gaze to perceive it. And what does it mean? And we're going to touch it. Because we want to figure out what is it. We want to manipulate it. How does it work into our lives? And then the, the Greek here for life is both physical as well as spiritual. And it's used interchangeably throughout Scripture. How does this divine light, this epiphany, this manifestation of light and hope actually impact both my physical life, how I live out daily, how I get up, how I enter, as well as spiritually, my relationship with God, my standing with God. 
And so this is the challenge, and even through this series, as, as we talk, right, even the wise men, as they were coming to look, they said, go and search diligently. That's an active, that's a verb tense. We're going to search. I want to see what this impacts, how does it impact my life, physically and spiritually. And in 1 John 1, 1, we declare to you what was from the beginning. We declare it. This is the presentation of, as we begin this series, as we do the uh, love changes the narrative, that narrative as we proclaim the stories of God, both through scripture and our own life, we are declaring what is from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at, what we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life is revealed and we have seen it and we testify to it and we declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed in us. We declare to you what we have seen and what we have heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. In Methodist culture, because you guys know I'm deeply rooted in Methodist traditions, uh, I'm learning them as I go, there is uh, a covenant prayer. Can we put up the next slide? Uh, that Wesley wrote. Uh, and it was typically uh, read each year, either at New Year's, part of Epiphany, or which next week will be on the church calendar is the celebration of the baptism of Christ. It was a, a reaffirmation of what we believe. And this is what it says. This is, this is going to help because I don't have my notes with me. Uh, it says, I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for thee or laid aside for thee. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Thou art mine, and I am Thine. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. This is, historically, traditionally, a um, covenant prayer, covenant statement, that Methodists would say annually, just to say, I'm still in this is still where I am. I still believe in God. And, and I'm still going to, as we embark on a new year, I am still going to surrender to God, right? I am no longer my own, but yours. In, in plenty or in want. And so I know the top words are a little thin, but I would like us all to kind of read this as we start our new year. As, as a, our statement or a covenant, if you are willing to reaffirm or, or as the language here says, ratified this commitment to God, this willingness to surrender to God in our state. So please read with me if you will. I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. 
Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for thee, or laid aside for thee. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine, and I am thine. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. As we move to our